house. I just think that people should think a bit more about how out of proportion things are right now. And if we can do it in a positive pop band way, yeah. then it's not a preaching thing, a heavily political thing. It becomes something that you can digest easily. If you want because it's put in a pleasant form. It's like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The words are the medicine and the sugar is the song. That's the joke. Some people don't get it and some people think it's wrong. But that's the joke, so... All the elements have been mixed together, from excellent pop music to meaningful lyrics. They're addictive, and set to create the same buzz stateside as in the UK. Voice of the Beehive will walk the earth. This is 80s Audio commentary... Tracy Boland, a.k.a. Tracy Brick. Voice of the Beehive. Let it be. Welcome to Ichthyography, another audio commentary, and this is a wonderful chat with wonderfully talented school teacher and former pop star singer-songwriter Tracy Boland, known then as Tracy Brin of Voice of the Beehive. Now these are audio commentary episodes, always a bugger to edit, and trying to fit the chats roughly within the length of each song. But outside of that, this particular one was one of the easiest to edit because Tracy was so articulate with these perfectly flowing sentences that perfectly distilled to an essence the experience of making a great pop record in the 80s. This is a great interview, great chat. If you're new to the format, there's a little chat initially to set the scene, pre-album, and then when side one is ready, one of the kids will give the 3, 2, 1 countdown and press play and enjoy, or just listen to his interview. But this is, a, this is the wonderful Let It Be by Voices Beehive from Miss Boland, a.k.a. Main Beehive, Tracy Brin. Enjoy. This is the start of the interview. Wait, so you're a teacher, so you, are you a uh, art teacher, a drama teacher, an English, what? I did teach art for one year during the pandemic, everything changed, but I teach three to four-year-olds. Oh. I have a class of 12 to 14 kids, and I developed this program where these little 
tiny souls learn Picasso, Matisse, Frida Kahlo, Monet. Nope, they love the boys love Jackson Pollock because he makes a mess. And (laughs) by the end of the school year, they know their stuff. And I I just thought if I have to do A's for abstract, I'm never gonna make it. So I devised this program and I love it and the kids love it. And I'm really happy with my job. 14, three to four. I've got one three-year-old and that's enough. Like 14 of them. How do you cope? What's the secret to keeping them all quiet? Let them know within the first week what the deal is. Right. I'm the boss. You do what I say and you will get more love and more stimulation and more curiosity quench than you ever thought possible. But do what I tell you to do. And be cool. Be kind. That's yeah, it. Mom, do you babysit? Hell no. Not no. <laughs> no. I'll be lucky if I, you know, can hang out with my 14-year-old niece. That's about, no. The, it's funny because when the weekends come, I shut that door on a Friday at 5 o'clock and I need quiet for an hour. <laughs> and then I don't see any children for two days. And then I'm ready to go back and do it all over again. So I have it now. Down to a science now. So you do a kid's detox and then you're ready for Monday. Totally. And that's what it is. It's like as a teacher, you have a certain amount of gas in your tank. And by Friday at five, I'm I'm on empty. Right, and then right. I go back on Monday and it's full. But it's pretty cool. I had a little kid that was at a, a restaurant and saw an Andy Warhol on the wall and said to his mom, that's Andy Warhol. That's an Andy Warhol painting. And his mom just really was condescending and said, no, it's not, honey. And the waitress said, yeah, it is. It's an Andy Warhol. That's amazing. Your work is done. That's incredible. I need to bring some culture to America. That's brilliant. Yeah, I love that. That's that's cool. Okay, so so you talk about the the songs. Okay. Long enough to cover the length of the songs. The basic idea is you talk through the album, track by track, and the listeners separately will sync up to the album. And listen to the album as you talk through the tracks, as the track of tracks playing. Okay. The only thing I can foresee is that part of the thing they're enticing people with are the liner notes I wrote. So I mm-hmm. just have to not repeat the liner notes. Okay. That's a challenge for you then. That's all right. I can do you it. You can maybe paraphrase the important bits of the liner notes. Exactly. Just not go into detail. There's, yeah. there's still plenty to talk about besides <laughs> cause me to write them alone in my room. How did it take you to do that? Tell oh, liner notes took forever. It was so much fun, though, but it took a long time. It was really cool. I went back to my old journals, and I talked to some friends, and it was really, I really enjoyed it. And the good thing is, well, I'll save this for when I talk. Yeah, okay. I, I take it your kids don't know, because they're so young, that you used to be a pop star. You know, it's I don't tell anybody, Mark. I really don't. And I had somebody a guy who's from England and he, he put it all together and (laughs) we were at a kid's birthday party and he told all my parents (laughs) and you know, I, if I wanted them to know, I'd tell them it's, it's weird because one mother that never gave me the time of day was suddenly kissing my feet, Yeah, yeah. you know, and if they don't know the band then they're embarrassed because they don't know who you are, you know, so I keep that to, I keep it to myself. And they, if they see a video, they say, oh, look at silly Miss Tracy when she was a little girl. Yeah. I wish my kid had a nursery teacher that was in Voice of the Beehive. That'd be the coolest. Oh, 
I make it fun and I love accessorizing with the girl. Uh, believe me, it's just, it's not that different than being in a band. You just play all day. I was going to say, what's the, what's the biggest similarity between being a pop star and being a, a teacher? That's Trying it. to harness the wind, just playing, play all day. I, you forget how to play when you get older. It's just, it is what you make it. That's another similarity. To start off with, how did you end up, you and your sister, in England in the 80s? I was traveling through Europe with my boyfriend. And I'll never forget, I came, we had been in Spain and we went all over traveling, just backpacking. We didn't have a lot of money. And I came up out of the tube at Piccadilly Circus and it was nighttime and I'm a neon light girl. I love city lights at night and it was raining, of course. And I just thought, wow, I, this is it. This is, I found you. Here I am. That's it. And then, um, we got interest. I went down the street to a mate's house, Mike, who was the guitarist. And we, were, we had nothing to do. So we were making, recording some of my songs. And we got interest. And I called Missy and said, you know, this I think this might be happening. Why don't you come over for a bit and let's see if this thing we've talked about is going to have a chance. And she came over. And next thing you know, we were open. We were playing at the greyhound i forget our first gig but anyway then next thing i know we were signed it, it happened we paid our dues but we paid them really quickly do you remember the first song you wrote where you thought you said like you said there this is happening was there one song you thought this is this is really good i had a song called this week which is in fact on the um i think it's on this release yeah and i didn't think that would be a hit there was about a a rape but it was disguised like a beehive song always is and uh but i knew that mike mike had something mike and i worked really well together because he i would say can i get a crunchy kind of james honeyman scott guitar and bam he did it so i knew there was a short hand between us No, I thought I'd say nothing was going to set the world on fire and be a mega smash hit for the to outlive all the other pop songs. But it didn't do that. So I don't know much about that. Yeah, we'll get to that because, yes, you're right. It should have done because, yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a pop masterpiece, that song. But we'll, we'll get to that. So um, was it before or after you assigned that you, you kind of got the rhythm section of Madness? Involved? We found... David Balf and Andy Ross, may he rest in peace, uh, found us and kind of managed us before. And we released uh, just a city on the Tiny Food label. It was tiny then. They had like two bands on there. And uh, we released that and got the indie cred and got, you know, the lay of the land. 
And then they got us a deal with London Records. And so it, that's pretty much the way it worked. We had management first and then we had record company. And, and getting Mark Bedford and uh, Danny Woodgate involved. <laughs> Right. Balfe said, do you want to work with the Madness Rhythm section? Duh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, please. (laughs) And that's when I started really tripping because I'm in England. I, you know, did a a demo tape with this guy. And next thing I know, the Madness Rhythm section is going to play. I had them on my wall. I mean, that was when it started getting really surreal. And they were obviously we love Woody with all our hearts and betters was really neat to watch. He had a way of playing bass where he just plays with every cell in his body. It's pretty neat. So I learned a lot from them. So was it hard presenting your songs for them to play? Was it? No, because I was I didn't I was young and dumb. I didn't know. I thought these are all right. These are good. Let's see what they say. You know, I was just blindly confident and. You know, thought you should do it now or don't do it. I didn't really have a choice. Yeah. And you know I, what I mean? I, I couldn't suddenly have a shy attack of, is it good enough? It's like, it's, I'm going to try. And if it's not good enough, it's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And the band name Voice of the Beehive, where did that come from? We had a friend who uh, had a band called Voice of the Salesman. And I loved that. I thought it was such a powerful name. And I thought Voice of the Something. And then we love the B-52s. I know from reading that the beehive is like a perfect form of nature in its function. Mm -hmm. And so we just said voice of the beehive. That We didn't hate it. Put it that way. We didn't hate it. We thought that's okay. That's pretty good. So It's a a great name for a pop band. It's certainly better than voice of the salesman. Voice of the salesman. Well, it was cynical kind of punk rock, emo, you know, moody stuff. So. No, it wouldn't have fit. No joy in that title. So you get the record deal. At what point does that record deal mean you're making an album? Was that from the off or? Right away. Right, right away. away. Just the city was obviously going to be on it. And then we started just, you know, I started pulling out all the songs I had. Trust me, I had done. I'll save that for later. I had done uh, with my old, old band. So I had some songs from before, and then I had I wrote some new songs, and Mike and I wrote some new songs. Okay, I think that sets up perfectly for the album. Audio commentary, side one, three, two, one, play! So track one is Beat of Love. Okay, Beat of Love. Uh, God, I was sitting on the beach in California, and I saw a couple fighting... And I remember thinking just to myself, the beat of love is a nasty one because they were being nasty to each other. And I just said that to myself. And then all of a sudden, da 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 that came first. The rhythm of it came first before the words. But the the choppy, talky kind of rhythm. I really love Chrissy Hines. She did that a lot on the weight. And people would say to me, you have too many words in your songs. It's like, no, that's my style and I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> and I was very much influenced by Chrissy Hines. So that was about the contradiction of love. You know, all you want to do is fall in love and then you're in love and all you want to do is be free. And then, you know, the idea of just, you know, it's called a crush because rah, it just crushes you. It's it, the 
words they use are very kind of violent. The beat of love, your heart beats and it's a crush you have on someone. So I thought, I just thought all those contradictions were really interesting. And the beginning, that weird sitar kind of thing, we were at Portobello Road. I think it was called Air Studios, but I can't remember. That's where George Michael was recording Faith. And I used to go sit in the stairwell and listen to him do vocals, which was oh, kind wow, of cool. cool. Yeah, it was really neat. I, But I can say this because he's no longer with us. I thought, this sounds like Close to Me by The Cure. Dun, 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 dun. And I thought, that's close <laughs> to me. And then I realized, no, and George is going to put his own little slant on it. But I did go in the dark store. I didn't even tell anybody. I was really selfish for the first couple of days. And then I finally said, all right, George Michael's up there. He's, you know, <laughs> take over my private space. But um, the, there was somebody out front playing the sitar and had a hat out and was trying to make some money. And uh, I forget who asked him. Maybe Woody. Seems like something Woody would do. Or Mike. Uh, went out and said, mate, you know, you want to make, you know, 50 quid? Come in and just mess around and just play something. And, you know, maybe we'll use it. And I just like it because I love that it's the start to the record. Because it sounds like my brain sounds sometimes <laughs> when it's on overload, like the the riff in um Sweet Child of Mine, like the crazy circus music. And I thought, yeah, that sounds exactly like the inside of my head when I'm in love. So um, we kept it. And then halfway through the beat of love, you can hear a plate spinning. And sure enough, it, we just wanted to do something kind of fun. And we spun a plate and it took forever to clamp down on the ground flat. And it sounded cool. So we kind of like that dizzy effect of, you know, when you swoon, you're kind of lightheaded. And, you know, so that's what love sounded like to me at the time. <laughs> and and, and Temptation oh, Rap is written by your sister. So how did that okay. get incorporated in the song? I'm going to throw her under the bus. I'm not. not. I say this with love. My sister's my best friend. Um, She decided, she said, let's do like a rap. Let's do something, you know, again, the da 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 da, keeping with that. And so she looked up uh, love in the dictionary. And she just read the, the definition of love and kind of tweaked it and made her, made it her own and, Added, I don't know if she added temptation or not, but maybe she did. But so that's why, obviously, that whole idea is a whole concept that's important to the middle of it. So she definitely should have gotten credit for, if not word for word, certainly the idea. Right. Okay. And, and the little trick we did. Track yeah. two is Sorrow Floats. Well, Sorrow Floats, I wrote myself. God, I had this little guitar. It was, I got it at an Oxfam and it was, I don't even know if it was a real guitar. It was one of those kids ones with the thick nylon strings and it's not very melodic, but I had it. It's all I had. And so I kind of completely made up my own chords. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't, I knew the basic chords 
But I thought, let's do something a little different because every song I'm writing is A-D-E. So let's try to do something a little different. And I just moved my fingers around until I hit that beginning chord for the verse. I don't even know what it's called. Mike could tell you. I couldn't tell because I'm self-taught. And then I kind of moved over, you know, and spread out my fingers some more. And I swear to God, there must have been angels watching me because <laughs> a song came out of it. And I, I have no idea what the chords are. So I sat down and I'm showing it to Mike. And he said, all right, what, what are the chords? I said, well, you put this finger here and this finger here. And then these two go back here. And he's looking at me like, What? But from that, I guess he got the bow now, now, now. He got the the intro. I think my fingers were on the guitar in a way that those were the notes that made that chord. So I must have been doing something right. But um, uh, it, it came out all right. I'm sure that Mike had a lot to do with kind of cleaning it up. But it was really came quickly from the heart. I had a friend. You know, a lot of friends that you could tell they drank differently than others. And um, it's just the state of alcohol and the, the power it has. And this was before I moved to England. So alcohol and its effect on people always kind of fascinated me. I didn't come from an alcoholic family or anything, but I had enough friends that were usually really smart and creative and I would watch them really change with a drink, just one drink. And I thought, man, this is like a poison or, but it looks like a medicine and it just fascinated me. So I tried to put myself in the head of uh, a girl who, who just doesn't know what to do. She can't stop. She can't not stop. And, you know, Sorrow Floats is actually a, a John Updike chapter in one of or john irving i'm sorry john irving it's one of the chapters in one of his books and i heard sorrow floats and i thought oh my god little did i know that sorrow was the dog the family dog and he drowns and he floats uh. so anyway i'm thinking you know you can't drown sorrows because they float so that was really john irving's idea not mine but um again i kind of just stole it and did my own thing with it do you prefer writing songs on your own to collaborating? Because obviously it's a very different process. Uh, I don't have a preference. Some songs just come so easily. Some songs I labor over and they're still crap. Mike and I sometimes work effortlessly together and sometimes we could not get it right. So it's it's... I don't think it has to do with whether I'm alone or with somebody. I think it just has to do with the ether and the air. Let's go to track three, which is uh, the big hit. Big hit. Don't, oh, call don't Call Me Baby. Baby. Yeah. Well, I this is, and Dave Balf always said, don't, don't tell people this in interviews, but I can do it now because I'm a big girl. Um, this is my least favorite song. Oh, it's not that fun to play. It's not that fun to sing. The only thing that's fantastic about it is that the audience loves it. It's not my favorite song. I don't feel much about it. 
like certainly I say nothing. I that song just I close my eyes and I'm off. I'm you know, I'm not even here anymore. Just the city, for instance. Don't call me baby. It's you know, it's all right. Make sure you hit the harmonies. Missy does the high part at the end that she always bitches about, but it struck something somewhere. I just thought, let's write a corny teenage love song. And that's just kind of what came out. So with any of these, we actually trying to write a hit single. I was trying kind of. Yeah, I thought, well, let's see if I try and write a hit. Let's try and write a hit. And um, I didn't even know what that meant. But when I heard it, I thought, no, this isn't this isn't the hit I was going to try and write. But of course, the record company, oh, we love it. It's great. It's your next single. I thought, oh, man, damn it. I should never have showed it to them. But I guess mm-hmm. I should have. I'm being ungracious. I should have. Absolutely. And if, like I said, if the bees enjoy it, then that's then that's what it should be for. See, Cara, it's with Mike Jones. So, so what was the process of writing with him? Like, and specifically? Oh, my God. Like- Don't call me baby. See, I can't remember. That says a lot because I remember writing almost every single song and I don't remember writing Don't Call Me Baby. That's interesting. The big That's very, very life. telling. You brought up yeah. a, good, a good point, Mark, because I don't remember it. I'd have to look in my journals, but no, nothing comes to mind. Isn't that awful? It's, weird, isn't it? it's just a throwaway that track. That's the big hit. Like You just dismiss it because... <laughs> so is it the process then that like... Because the process wasn't memorable, that like it doesn't stick out to you as a song, as opposed to like the end result. Well, I'm trying to think. Don't don't call. I really genuinely cannot remember. I know with <laughs> "I Say Nothing," I'll go into it later. But I <laughs> heard that song in my head before anything was recorded. I heard it in my head, and it came out the way I heard it in my head. Don't call me baby. I never heard that in my head. I did, but I like that there are lots of harmonies and that, you know, the harmonies intertwine. And I like the wall of sound Pete's got going. And, uh, you know, I like the simplicity of Woody's drums is just magic to me in that song. But, you know, that's that's all I really got for that one. <laughs> track four, Man on the Moon. I love this track. Oh, I like this song too. If I dare say so myself, I could see. Now I'm older, I can't see his face quite as well. But I saw the I saw a face in the Man in the Moon, and for some reason, I've always been fascinated by full moon faces. I collected them in jewelry, and I have them in my house. I love the round full moon face. Sometimes they look like dastardly and menacing, and sometimes they look calm and serene. Sometimes they look innocent. Sometimes they look uh, randy, you know, so I was fascinated by that. And then I Zodiac Mind Warp inspired this only in that he would write about sex and his love rocket and all that. And I thought, try to do something with the similes. You know, he says, I can ride his rocket. No, that's barbarian. But um, he's always where I can see him. I trust him on Venus. I like that kind of creative way of writing that that I saw Zed do. And so I kind of use that. I use similes and metaphors. It's just a hopeless romantic girl saying, you know, there's always the man in the moon. And maybe that's all I'm going to end up with because the human ones aren't working out too well. But I love Pete did a beautiful job of that. I walked in and he had done the backing track and it just 
that was a moment when I thought, oh my God, this, I can't believe this is part of our record because it really sounds like I'm in space and I'm, you know, it sounds like I felt when I wrote it and that's not easy to come by. Yeah. It's kind and, of haunting uh, in a way, isn't it? It's kind of absolutely it's and pretty like, and haunting. It's got like the percussion are almost like bubbles popping. And I thought, oh man, Pete is good. He mm. is good at what he does. And I walked in and I almost teared up because that was quite something to have song in your head that you don't know. This is a song about the man in the moon. And people are like, what? We're supposed to be a rock band. And and it's credit to Mike that he loved it. He said, oh, this, no, this is good. This isn't. I said, is it twee? Do you think it's too, you know, twee? And he said, no, no, this is good. This is kind of cynical. And so just to hear it come alive and hear the vocals and my little sister singing and the bubbles popping and the fade out as the Mike's guitar gets really busy. I just, I love that song. I really love the song. It's like a, a lullaby to me. And, and just credited to you and your sister. So what was her contribution to it? She wrote... No, I can remember. We both just sat down and just brainstormed lyrics. Uh, love Caravan, that was inspired by... The Man on the Moon is my love caravan. That's very um inspired by Zed. Missy and I just riffed on each other. I guess they didn't have that word when we wrote it. But we just were kind of bouncing ideas back and forth. And it just came that naturally. It wasn't anything more than just, oh, that's good. Write that down. That's good. Write that down. Okay, what about this? What about this word instead? So it was that easy and that effort not effortless but it was pretty easy to to write because missy and i are half of the same brain you know when we get together it's like there's again not only a shorthand there's like an unspoken way that we communicate because we're sisters and that happened on that song with the lyrics really quickly and easily okay let's go to track five you got two minutes 37 on what you have is enough oh this is a very american song and i realized once I got to England, what people meant when they talked about America and Americans, how gluttonous we are and how spoiled we are and how, you know, our our bad qualities. I'm talking about the America of 1986, which is totally different than this America. And Americans, you could tell on the streets of London, you could tell an American, they were not really minding the other people on the street. And, you know, they wanted ice with their drink and they talked louder than they should have. And I thought, boy, talk about a culture that's never happy with what they have and it's never enough and they want it bigger and they want it better. So that's a very American driven song. I didn't get to London and say, oh, this is a song that fits this place at all. I thought, wow, America's spoiled. That's that's what we are. And now I see for myself why we're thought of as spoiled. And as it turns out, it applies to every human being on the planet now. <laughs> yeah, things have come full circle. <laughs> so I had the album in 88 when it came out. And um, yeah. if you'd have asked me in, before I, I re-listened to the album, look at the track listing, or I would consider this as one of the, the, the so-so album tracks. But listen to it now, there's not a bad track on this album. This sounds fantastic. Amazing. How do, how do you assess it now? I think personally, and I'm going to brag, I think this song and Look and look at Me are really prophetic and ahead of their time. And I think... Look at Me, yes. Yes, off yeah. any lingers, yeah. I think especially, we're not a girl band, but we're, a, we're led by two girls. And I think that not only are they good tracks, but I think they're really good tracks 
to come from two females when a lot of the time all there is to say is baby baby do it to me or you know why did you ghost me or you know i there's got to be more to say and i never really wanted to write love songs just plain love songs which might be why i didn't feel anything for don't call me baby so i think those two i'm proud of those two songs i think those two songs say a lot coming from a group led by women okay let's get the last track on side one. Oh, love another lovely song this is my sister's song and there's a really really cool version of it on the disc coming out it's just her and the piano I don't even think there are guitars on it. I don't even think I have a vocal on it. It's just her with a piano. Our guy who produced it, Marvin Etzioni, who was in an American bag called Lone Justice, did it. And it's very moving. It's so jarring that it didn't work on the record. It's like all of a sudden, whoa, this big statement when you're kind of in this pop euphoria. And then it drops down to this, you know, cigarette and scotch moment in a bar. It's like, no, we let's let's keep the party going. But Missy loves country music. I don't so much, but she loves it. She loves Dolly Parton, Tammy Wynette, Loretta Lynn, Patsy Cline loves them. And she wrote a song uh, imagining, say, that Dolly would sing it or, you know, Loretta Lynn or something. And that's what came out. And... I made, I wrote, I made my own bed and now I must lie in it alone, tried to turn the tide and nobody's fault. That's all I wrote on there. She wrote the rest in her sweet little voice and I love it. She, she's so insecure. You know, she, she doesn't realize what a really good song it is. In fact, I wish a country artist would hear it and cover it mm. because I think that would make a slamming good song. It sounds like a standard, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to maybe even hear somebody like Miley Cyrus cover it. Because mm. she, she can do country when she wants. She can do anything when she wants to. But that's something I might talk to my, my friend about. Because that song should see the light of day again. And it's going to. People are going to be. That's one standout. It's going to be really surprising when they hear it. That's a real rarity. Is she done singing yet? <laughs> And she doesn't sing it. <laughs> oh, come on, Ray. <laughs> I, I love to hear it's It's funny because we do sound so much alike, but you can hear. I don't know if you can. I yeah. can definitely hear the difference. She has a bit of a higher, thinner, where mine's kind of low and thick. So if, has, you re- yeah. if you really care to, you can hear the difference. But she I, has I a nice voice, but you, you have a very distinctive voice. I do. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that was so does Bob Dylan, and he sounds like crap. But no, 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 no. They have a really nice voice, but she has a kind of more kind of generic sounds a bit, bit um, dismissive. But it's a nice voice. But where's yours? Just to stand out more, I would say. It's all that that angst. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. And decide why. Hey, I'm Will. And I'm Kat. If you love 1980s pop culture, you'll love 1980s now. Each week we discuss our favorite 1980s media. Like movies, TV shows, music. Yeah, we chat with our favorite 1980s celebrities. Like affirmations with Dee Wallace. And other times, uh, Alex Winter tells us what Bill and Ted's phone booth smells like. But it's always fun. You don't have to miss the 1980s. You can have your 1980s now.
I, I saw a video on YouTube of you performing on the Ronan Rat Show. While I try and find him, why don't you watch our Ronan Pop Slot? So, Rat fans, please welcome the voice of the Beehive! <laughs> Which must have been a career highlight. Oh, we were so pissed. <laughs> pissed and pissed really off or pissed and drunk? We, yeah, yeah, yes, I used the words correctly. We're doing a show with the rat, first of all. And we had to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And we started just with the little tibble. And oh, my God, by the time we went on after delays, delays, we weren't like we could do our job. But I could tell by the grin on my face that I'm I'm buzzed. I'm definitely pissed. TV show like that. How long are you there for? Do you have to go through uh-huh. endless rehearsals and then wait for your... Well, you've got something like Top of the Pops, which is just like a machine. Two, 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 in, professional, out. And then I don't know why the rat couldn't get it together. (laughs) That says a lot about the rodents. But, you know, you pace yourselves, especially when you're going to play and drink. So we misjudged that. Did you meet Roland? Yeah, I met Roland. I also met Michael Stipe. You want to hear about that? Yeah. (laughs) Roland, rat, or Michael Stipe? Let me think. Oh, oh. Meeting the rat was like, it's, it was like the Saturday morning characters that squirted yeah. the gel. They freaked, they all freaked me out. I, I, Missy would have fun and talk dirty with them and, you know, humor them. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so not into this. <laughs> uh, Michael Stipe is just that, I dropped that name because it's like the only one, the big one I have because I think he's so amazing. But he was friends with my boyfriend and uh, we hung out when they were in town touring uh, Peter Buck would take us out and Michael Stipe would come sometimes and we had drinks together. They were lovely. So that that was good. That was way better than the rat. I guess the first, I think, last time that Michael Stipe and Roland Rat will be mentioned in the same <laughs> sentence in this podcast. Side two. Three, two, one, play. Okay, let's go to side two and the first track, which is I Walk the Earth. Oh, I Walk the Earth. What a fun song, right? Yeah, great song wish i'd written it i didn't write it it's it's a cover but not if it wasn't famous uh i lived in santa barbara and there was a band there called the tan and they had this song that the boy i was telling you about he he wrote it brad knack and it's such a brad song because it's so simple and brad was really traveled and really quirky and arty and kind of just looked at things in a completely different way than anybody he had a very european sensibility when we got a deal i thought somebody's got to take that song his band was not coming through it wasn't coming through they weren't doing the record they were supposed to do and it was a nightmare. So I, I sure I asked him. God, I hope I asked him. I did because he said, yeah, worst that can happen is it's a hit and I make a little money. So we did it and kind of tried to make it our own. Although the tan had a very beehivey kind of spirit too. It was like B-52s in that it's, it's all a surf party. So I love doing it. I love singing it live. Missy loves to dance to it. Uh, something interesting that I've never told anybody is when I came back from London, and was in Santa Barbara, Brad's mom walked in on me and I was crying. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, I miss London. I I don't want to be here. I want to be in London. And she said, you should go because the world's not that big a place. So that her son wrote, I walk the earth. This is my home. It says a lot about the way he was raised. You know, he was Mm. in Spain and, and Brazil when he was like eight. So that philosophy i got from going out with him and from living with his family and traveling with his family and and i love 
my dad always says one thing he liked about my writing was that the lyrics go with the melody. And I said, well, they're just the, they're just words. And he said, no, you pick certain words for certain melodies. And I just think grab like even my darling and with that melody, my darling, my darling, my darling, it just fits so beautifully. It's, it's such a nice marriage of melody and the syllables and the the sound you know the consonants and the vowels of it it's a beautiful marriage of both of those and unfortunately i don't talk to brad anymore he well he doesn't talk to me so it's that much more melancholy uh, when i hear his version but our version is a romp and it's fun and it reminds me of playing live and voice of the beehive and woody and there's not a lot of brad in there for me because i couldn't i couldn't have done that i could have couldn't have played it every night i had to kind of just start from scratch and just make it a beehive song he had a writing credit on beat of love so did you get together after that to work on songs no beat of love was done after i walk the earth and brad wrote the chords he i just said you know i could hardly play guitar and i said i've got these words and can you give me some kind of chords to go with it and it goes like the dot the da 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 so i did this the tempo of it and the pattern of it i didn't have any notes to go with it so he just said well do these notes and do what you're doing over these notes so obviously he got credit for that yeah i hope he's making a lot of money he's a good guy so was there falling out with him then because you said you, you you don't talk anymore was it just you? yeah he hates me he hates me i well i broke up with him i went to england to help go with him while his band tried to make it and our band got found and i ended up you know getting really caught up in the band and kind of getting into that and you know i just i treated him horribly and believe me to this day and it's been 40 years i still have brad dreams where i am messing him over and i'm paying the price so payback's a bitch. Uh, it's still a bit of guilt there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I say no, but obviously there is because I dream about him once a week and he's <laughs> being horrible. Okay, let's go to the next track, Trust Me. Oh, I really could do without the jungle noises in the beginning. I mean, they're kind of fun and I like the spirit that they're done in, but when Missy was in a bad mood, she really didn't like doing it. <laughs> She just was like, God damn it, Tracy. But um, that was more of a producer thing, I think. This was a song, one of the first songs I wrote when I was in a band called The Boys in Santa Barbara. This was, I got it, was like maybe the third song I wrote. And I was fascinated by infidelity and why it's so hard for guys to just be faithful and why for such different animals... Are we meant to be together and breed and love? And, you know, it just was all perplexing to me. So the original verse was saying, you know, statistics are not on my side, but I'm going to be I'm going to be the um, exception to the rule and the statistics. I'm going to be the one out of all this, you know, 99 percent. I'm going to be the one percent that's going to stay loyal and then I realized, well, it's not really you staying loyal. It's your boyfriend staying loyal that we have to kind of work on. So I had more than my share of faithful men. But, you know, it's not as interesting for a song. <laughs> In fact, going to Michael Stipe, I said once I used to introduce and say, this is a song about infidelity. And I was telling Michael Stipe this. And I said, everybody cheered. He said, what's that about? What are they cheering for? Infidelity. Yay. <laughs> we didn't, couldn't figure out what they were clapping for, but I don't know. 
But did you tell it to Roland Rat though? Uh, <laughs> I would like to see Roland do Don't Call Me Baby and take that song and remarket it and keep it away I, from me. I think Roland's probably in a box somewhere in an attic, isn't he? Let's face oh, it. With that stupid hat. Oh, man. <laughs> Back to Trust Me. It's a good song. I guess it's one of those tracks that I'd kind of dismissed in, in, in yeah. at the time, but now I think it's, it just sounds great. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't my favorite either. And people love it. People that love it really love it. So there must be something. Well, the Chrissy Hine thing you mentioned earlier is very instructive because I can hear it now. Right. Oh, the second record, second Pretenders record was my favorite. And I know that's not a popular opinion. So that's definitely influenced by Chrissy Hine. You get right. She's another American female singer songwriter that made a name in England. It's just yep. like. I would say 90% of the reason that I even wanted to stay was, was because that happened to her. And I thought it just made a huge impression on me. And as luck would go, within a month of living there, I ran into her at a Prince concert. She was drinking a lager with with a friend by the t-shirt stand and i went up i was shaking like a leaf nobody was around <laughs> i went up and i said i'm in england and i'm playing in a band because of you and uh woody from madness is our drummer and i'm in a band you know because of you and she said you don't know whether to hit me or kiss me do you <laughs> said, no, not right now i don't so that, you know, I go home that night just crying, sobbing, like, oh, my God, <laughs> Dr. Chrissy Hyde, what's happening? Let's go to track nine, I Say Nothing, Masterpiece. Thank you. This is just, you know, when you have, well, you don't because you don't, you're not a teacher, but I always have like one kid every year that, oh, just like gets to me and just I love so much. And this is, this is that song. This is one of those songs that came out of the ether. I was in a squat at Bromley by Bo. I was sitting on the floor. I remember exactly where I was sitting. And I had this experience and this feeling that I really wanted to talk about and write about. And it just, my fingers just started moving and it just started, I started singing. I have no idea where it came from. It, it not from me. It it was almost like it was set down on my head, and it kind of went through, you know, my head. And that sounds so weird, but it just was kind of give. It was placed onto me. It took probably forty five minutes to write, and I was so excited. I thought, oh my god, this is exactly how I feel. This is exactly what I wanted it to sound like. And then the guitars were exactly. I laid in bed one night again when we were squatting, and. I heard the whole song in my head, how I wanted it, and it came out exactly. I don't take a lot of credit for that other than the lyrics because the music part was really weird that really just kind of came to me. And then the production, I think, is wonderful. The ringiness and the bells and the lightness and then the the pretenders influenced guitar. Mike did his thing on that, and I just love the feeling of that guitar. I'm, and I love the lyrics. It's a it's a story that's really near and dear to me. So I just love playing it live. Is it true that the lyrics were inspired by a night out with Zodiac Mindwalk? Yes, they were. 
the basis of it is that, you know, Zodiac Zed had this reputation for being a hard ass. And he even had a reputation for being dangerous. I mean, really dangerous and, and, and assertive and aggressive with women and, you know, abusive. And people were saying, oh, my God, you don't want to. He had asked if I wanted to go for a drink. And I said, yeah, we're both on food records. I would love to. And I liked his music a lot. And people warned me and they came. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And oh, my God, you can't be you can't go out with him. Be careful. Damn it. Be careful. It's like, oh, you guys are really buying this image, aren't you? And they didn't know shit. They didn't even know him. They'd never even met him. They were going off, you know, London gossip. When I met him and got to know him, it was completely the opposite. The first night we hung out, we ended up watching vintage Disney cartoons. <laughs> and he was, and it was, they were really good too. And he was a perfect gentleman. And I just thought, boy. Doesn't that say a lot? I wonder what the hell they're saying about me. You know, I dumb blonde or whatever. And that really taught me a lot about gossip and really standing by what I know to be true. And then there was one time that he was playing the electric ballroom and a girl really did come over to me and say, oh, you're the one. You were the one that was hanging out with Zodiac Mindwarp. Yeah, he's an asshole, isn't he? And it's like, oh. I wouldn't even entertain it with a response. And I did go home literally with all this in my head. And then the song came out. And Zed loves it. <laughs> okay, so talk about Zodiac Mind Warp. We've got a co-write with him for the next track. There's a barbarian. So I ever heard a version on YouTube that doesn't have the beep and just actually has the F word in it. That was a problem with, uh, I think it was Pennies they had or Woolworths or some British store. They wouldn't sell it if we had the F word on it. So I somebody thought of, I don't know if I thought of it, somebody thought of putting a beep. And I loved that. I thought it was so camp and kind of retro and it seemed naughty, but not really because it's not, you know, that big a deal. But I, I liked it. I thought it was like very comic booky or something, you know, beep. Ah, what is that? What did she say? Let's <laughs> play it again, you know. So and then when we say it live, everybody yells it with us. So. <laughs> But um, Zed was responsible for most of that and graciously split it with me. We were we were drinking in a pub for a change. And um, he just said something about I said, let's write a song together. Let's just do, see what we come up with. And he said, OK, let's write let's write a pop song for girls to sing. And, and then he just obviously with his mind just goes, ah, there's a barbarian in the back of my car. And I went, wow, wait a minute. That's really good because I have this history of boys and cars in America. I just watched the mind work and the eyes kind of glaze over and the images coming out. And it was really, really fun. And, you know, I added I added a few. We kind of played off of each other. And uh, he later did a backseat education, a video called Backseat Education, where he was the barbarian and he was in the back of the car. Mm. I wonder if backseat education was influenced by barbarian in the back of my car. Not funny, but it's fun. I it, it's it's we save it for last live because it just takes everything you got. By the time that song's over, you're done. Right. You've got nothing left. <laughs> So we save it for last. And, you know, if we got an encore, we go back and we have a little more energy. But it's a great song to end on because it builds that ending. Da 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 bow, And it's done. And thank you. Good night. I think it's a great way to end the night. What I love about that song is, is the horns on it, which is 
kind of surprising. You think it's like this rock track and then these horns come in. Brilliant. Isn't that funny? It works I really well. It's really well on the song. It's a, I, every time I hear it, I'm always kind of surprised by the horns and then think, yeah, it works perfectly. It definitely has like a campy element to it for me. Okay, let's go for the last track, Just a City, yeah. which was the first single you released, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I forgot that that ended the record. I thought Barbarian ended it. Oh, I wrote this. I told you how much I love London. I came back and left Brad. Brad was still in London. And I came back because I had my waitress job I had to get back for something stupid. And I just was pining, pining for London. I It physically hurt. I missed it so much. That's just what out and i remember my grandma saying oh what do you want to go back to london for what's there and i thought well she has no understanding of me or you know my sensibility or anything i want to do which you know i could see a person that age thinking oh you know don't go to england london there are pigeons in that trafalgar square place but (laughs) you know i i just it's a love story it's basically a love story it's hard to do live because the vocals are either spot on and when they're spot on they are magic or they're just a little off or they're really really off and if they're just a little off i don't know that anybody can tell because the audience sings that with us but when they're off it's like god damn it we're really ruining this song (laughs) but um it's very, very near and dear to me. It's like I said, it's a love song for a city. It was the first song of mine I ever heard recorded properly in a studio. And it was weird because it didn't, it sounded so disconnected from me and what I pictured. I grew to love it. And I love a good a live version if it's, if it's, if it's done well if we you know had the vocals right i like it live better than the production of it but it was just strange and i thought tracy you're just you've never had any of your songs produced you're not used to it so and that was the song where hugh had us on the floor sleeping at four in the morning and then said tracy wake up you got vocals it's like you've got to be kidding i'm singing now but it turned out okay because there's kind of a like a grogginess i think in my voice that suits it so you sang the main vocal at four in the morning? Yes. How many takes did you do? I would say I probably sang it four or five times. But again, Hugh, I told you about the way he worked. He'd rather get it as much in one take as he could. Hmm. Whereas Pete would cut and paste no problem. And like I said, neither one is better than the other. They're just very different ways of working. And for me, because I'm lazy, I like Pete's way. <laughs> 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 and was it always seen as that the last track it was not always seen it's the last tr- the last track no i think that was probably my idea that i thought what a nice song after barbarian to kind of just it's like this palate cleanser to kind of rock everybody in a different way rock them you know to sleep or whatever with a lullaby and because just a city is the story of my experience of of let it be it started with just a city i mean obviously trust me was written first but the whole thing came to be because of what i talk about in just a city so it was a nice ending i think i think it was a perfect way to end the record i remember ian i forget his name the guy from the cult what's his name ian asbury yeah ian asbury well, I reviewed it once and said, boy, somebody really ripped off Pearly Dewdrops by the Cocktail Twins. 
And I really loved that song, but I did not, I, if I ripped it off, I didn't do it. Well, I didn't produce it, so I didn't do it, but I didn't, I didn't think it was as good as that song. I mean, but he really got mad. He said, well, they should sue and all this. And so whatever, it wasn't intentional. Like It's a compliment, but it's certainly not intentional. And I don't really hear it other than maybe they're both in waltz time. They're both a waltz. Mm. But so that made me uh, not like Ian Asprey and side with Zed between that (laughs) that rock and roll argument. This is the end of Let It Be. So, so when did the um, album title come? It's a brilliant album title, Let It Be. It's a fantastic title. Uh, When did that come? Was there any resistance in the record companies? And you can't call it that. No, people loved it. The minute they heard it, they said perfect. It's funny because this guy came out of the woodwork an engineer or something that claims that he thought of it. And I swear that is such a Woody phrase and thought Woody, I believe Woody thought of it. It's typical Woody and the way he thinks with puns and Woody's a genius at things like that. And it's very much something Woody would have thought of, but this guy came out and he was working on his book and sent me a chapter. It's like, ah, remember it that way i really don't and i'm willing to give credit where it's due but i don't remember him thinking of that i would have remembered the guy's name who thought of let it be i i think i would have you know but that that was woody and he just said it we all loved it because you know the beehive and the back to british pop for instance woody had he was deaf in one ear or he is deaf in one ear and we were whenever we were sitting around bored he'd point to his working ear and say good ear isn't it good ear isn't it and it's like that's just (laughs) but in the strangest way with words and it's like so let it be would completely have come from woody's that's such a dad joke isn't it good ear it's such a dad joke and then (laughs) instead of woody instead of saying it was a pleasure working with you he'd say it was a pressure working with you it's like dad Buddy, come on. Gag, 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 gag. He's crazy. But Let It Be is a perfect title. The album cover. How much say would you have in, like, album covers, single covers, uh, video, Uh, that kind of stuff? We had a lot of say in the first one. We wanted something like, I believe it was kind of influenced by the Talking Heads uh, video for And She Was. where the girl's floating, you see her legs and her dress, yes. and things are floating through the air. We really wanted that kind of thing. And so we picked out our clothes and our hair and our earrings and all that, and they made us kind of floating in the sky. And um, we picked all the the visuals for it as far as that goes. They said, we're going to have you floating in the air. Is that what you want? And we said, yeah. So they went ahead and did that. Whereas I guess we'll talk later if they re-release it. Honey lingers. I I I did not like that cover. I look like a drag queen. Melissa and I both <laughs> bad drag queens too. Not even good ones. Just bad manly women or womanly men. <clears throat> and that's partly our fault because we we backed down and said, okay, all right, whatever you want to do, fine. And we wanted a take on Audrey Hepburn. Her movie Funny Face has a whole song about think pink and everything. They paint the whole town pink and the clothes are pink and the dogs are pink. And we wanted that. And 
the idea of it is there. If you look at Hunter Lingus, it's right there. But it, well, I don't like the way I look. And Missy doesn't. There's nothing connecting us with the audience. Whereas if mm-hmm. I'm blowing you a kiss, that's there's a connection there, I think, between somebody looking at the front cover and Martin hiding and Mike. I connect with that. Whereas the the two of us wrapped in satin on the floor, I, I don't connect to these girls in any way. I have no idea what they're trying to tell me. And let it be again. I love that it doesn't take itself too seriously. It, there's a little wink, wink. And we always, that was really important not to take ourselves too seriously. And we thought if we call our band Voice of the Beehive and call the first record, let it be, it's going to be really obvious that we are not out to be taken completely seriously and trying to change the face and the mood of rock and roll as it was in the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. You couldn't think that if you heard that title, you, you know. What do you wanted to call the second one, Be Here Now, which I thought was Yes, cool. yes, I mean, perfect, wouldn't it? Yeah, and then I think uh, Oasis came along and did it, so. Oh, before, just... I was going to say, if you'd have made an album after Be Here Now, that would have been perfect. But if you'd have made an yeah. album in 1999 or something, Be Yeah, he thought about that before the Oasis album. Yeah, yeah, B-E-E Here Now, he loved that. That's fantastic. I love Very that. Very bright little guy, are we? <laughs> bright little guy. I love that. <laughs> okay, so I mentioned some bands that you've been compared to. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the list. You would mention the B-52s, which I think is a good comparison. Love, again, love, that, love, that, love. that word joyous, you both kind of, you provide joyous music. Yeah. I saw them live a couple times, and God, they were fun. They were so much fun live. You just dance. I swear I saw them once in Santa Barbara, and I swear... There might as well have been beach and sand on the floor of the venue because it was a big, especially in Santa Barbara, it was a big beach party. And I thought the dress, they dressed like they didn't care or they did care, but didn't care what you thought. And they were just like the blueprint. That uh, B-52s and Fuzzbox were two of the blueprints for us as far as attitude and style. But the B-52s definitely came first. My biggest influences were Joni Mitchell, Chrissy Hind, Judy Garland, and Elvis Costello. But Joni Mitchell and Chrissy Hind had an exact, I wanted something from each of them that, you know, it's easier said than done. It is Joni Mitchell and Chrissy Hind, after all. They were important to me. I really paid attention to them. I knew that they were more than just chicks and bands. They really, really spoke to me and really, you know, got my attention. So what about these ones that I've read up that people have compared it to? So the Go-Go's? The Go-Go's I love, and I have no problem with that. Yeah, I love them. I really love, I was jealous when they first came out, I have to be honest, but I loved them. I love that, that first record was great, and I love their other stuff. Yeah, I, I like that. That's good. The Bangles? Uh, I didn't like that so much, only because I think that Susanna Hoff's All Due Respect... I hear she's lovely, and I've I, she said really nice things about us, but I think that she was more willing to use her natural sexuality than we were. I didn't want to pout and, you know, do the big eyes when you say, walk like an Egyptian in a baby voice. It's like, no, 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 no. And their sense of style, I guess we call it, um, sorry, their sense of style was very different than ours. We, they, we, they were dressed like a rock band, and we wanted to do B-52's pop. We wanted our look to be pop. And, and the one that I saw 
which which makes sense for your third album is Shakespeare's Sister because I think Sex and Misery has a real kind of very different yeah. feel to the other two albums. Was there a sense of the record company trying to to make you become something else yeah. as opposed to what you were? Yes. yes, that was a new record company. The boys didn't even play on some of the songs. I think it's a good record. I just don't know if it's a good beehive record. Yeah, that's, that's really well put. So th- th- that thing about your 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 back catalogue is is very small, mm-hmm. but because of that, it, the quality is very high. I think all three albums are really good, but like you said, those first two albums are very much Voice of the Beehive records. Yeah. The third yeah. record is a good record that you've made that's not necessarily a Voice of the Beehive record. Right, and I think people were definitely saying, you know, Shakespeare's Sister is hot right now, and I loved them. I thought they were great. I don't, to be honest, I don't know... The record, I know their hits, and I know the videos I've seen. I loved them. But, yeah, that was – it came out in an article recently, and it's so true. I had to write so many B-sides for different formats. If I hadn't have done that, we would have had five records out, maybe six. <laughs> but, you know, they used everything for B-sides. So when it t- came time for the fourth record or even the third record, I got nothing. You took everything I had. For B-sides, so we could sell more formats and rip off the punters, which is a whole other topic. But London did their best. They, they you know, everybody did their best. Yeah, because the bonus disc, the two-disc version has lots yeah. of extra tracks on it, doesn't it? So of all those B-sides, which is the one track you wish you'd kept for the next album? Uh, no question. Cartoon City It's one of my favorite, favorite Beehive songs. I love it. I love the chorus. I wish we could go back in and reproduce it, but it's, it sounds pretty damn good. That song should have been a, a hit and a single, I think. This is Cartoon City. I love it. Uh, that's frustrating then that you put on a B-side and you think, like, yeah. that could have been a single. I could have been the, like, the first single off the third album. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, could have, would have, should have, eh? I've got, yeah. I've got to mention, per- I mean, I think the second album, Honey Ling, is, is as good as the first. I think it's a fantastic album. Um, you know what? You want to hear a secret, Mark? What? I like the second one better than the first one. Ooh, interesting. Why? I love Adonis Blue. I love Little Gods. I love Look at Me. Uh, I love Just Like You. I the first one's very sentimental. I just I just wish I could pick my favorites from Let It Be and my favorites from Hunalingus and put them together. But I don't know why. It just I just it's got more listen listenability. Yeah. <laughs> because I didn't listen to it. I didn't you know didn't spend eight years with it before we recorded it. So it's fresher. It seems fresher to me. That's that's what I'll say. It seems fresher to me because I didn't, you know, I didn't toll away on it and labor away on it for right. a while. 
got something no one else can see. The earth is drying, planets are dying. Everybody's saying, yeah, I know, but look at me. And you didn't mention Monsters and Angels and Perfect. Love, yes, I love that song too, to be honest with you. Perfect Place to me is like the perfect pop song. And it's it's got a, that's a lyric that's kind of profound in a way. It's got this kind of empathy that I think is kind of lacking nowadays. In, in, in that's the, one I saved. I pulled that one and I wouldn't, that should have gone, that was ready to go on the first record. It was written and done. And I thought, no, I'm not giving that away yet. We'll see what happens. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm going to keep that for myself until I see what this animal looks like, you know. It's such a beautiful track. I just absolutely love that one. Thank you. It is Ography, Quick Fire Mound. If anyone could cover a song from the LP, talking about Let It Be, which song would you choose and who would you have cover it? For Missy, I would have Dolly Parton, Duo Love. <laughs> and I would like to hear Jack White do The Beat of Love. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Why? Why that song? Because he makes me horny. <laughs> <laughs> that is the single I, best answer I've ever had to any question. Thank it you. It makes me randy. He makes I think he could <laughs> Jack White has a way of delivering a lyric where you blush and he's not even doing anything intentionally, but you're like, oh my god, that sounds so wicked. So <laughs> I think he could do that song justice. I'm turning totally red right now. <laughs> Thank you for that answer. That's made my day. Um your favorite top of the pops experience. Oh, of course. Are you kidding? Meeting Morrissey. I don't care or know what anybody thinks of him now. <laughs> in the day, back in the day, Morrissey did Pregnant for the last time. I went up and I turned my guitar over and he signed it. And oh, my God. And then I played it wrong way round and they got so mad. because <laughs> they. I wanted people to see, look at Morrissey signed my guitar. They got so <laughs> mad because they actually thought people thought it was live 
Oh, they yeah. don't lip sync on top. It's like, you got to be kidding. At least have humor about it. But now I still have like a little O-R on it. But I sweat the I sweated the rest off <laughs> with gigs and stuff. But oh, that, oh my God. I met him and ah, I was crazy, crazy, crazy. And I went down in the audience when he played. And I got in so much trouble. I didn't care. <laughs> so what song were you doing at the time? Oh my God, who knows? No, it was... <laughs> yeah. uh, it was Monsters and Angels. Monsters and Angels. Okay, I want to find the clip now. Okay, that's a great answer. Um, weirdest place you've heard your music? Oh, well, it was in a Ralph's. You don't know Ralph's. Ralph's is a market. It's like Marks and Spencer's or something. Okay. Big market here. It was an, a 24-hour market. It was about 3 in the morning, and I was buying groceries. God knows why at that hour but i i thought god this song sounds so familiar that's weird and it took me a good two verses to realize that it was uh, a song from sex and misery so hard Did you point it out to anyone? There was nobody in the market. No. Or when you paid for your groceries, did you like no. say no. no? It's just not my cell. I just stood there alone and kind of went, "All right, girl." <laughs> I, there, no, I just listened to it and then bought my ice cubes and my potato chips. I've asked that question a bunch of times. I keep waiting for someone to say, "Yeah, I nudged the person next to me and said, that's me.' That is because I keep saying this, but that's exactly what I would do. Totally. I tell the next person, I grab somebody yes. who's spinning a shelf yes. and say, that's my and song.' And you know what? I I have done that before. Oh, I just okay. didn't. I just didn't at this time because I think the fa- if it was crowded for some reason, I would have done it. I would have said, you know what? This is my band, and I have done that. But the fact that it was totally empty. I just thought nobody really cares right now. <laughs> when was the last time you did do that then? I think Don't Call Me. No, it wasn't Don't Call Me Baby. I think it was Monsters and Angels. Yeah, we were in a shop in in America and I tapped somebody and I laughed and said, this is me. And they said, <laughs> no, it's not. I said, no, it really is. No, it's not. I said, okay. And I walked away. <laughs> and it's not, I guess, you know, better than me. <laughs> How frustrating. They didn't believe you. It's fine. I It's, it's you know, I don't need it. It's good. If you could change one thing about the LP, what would you change? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I always have this argument. I swear to the day I die and the day he dies, we will fight about this. I hate the hand claps in what you have is enough. Darling, what you have is enough. Darling, I hate them. And Hugh Jones made us put them in. And I saw him 10 years later and said, you fucker, I hate those hand claps. He said, I stand by the hand claps. It's like, no. So that, he would laugh. That absolutely, I hate the hand claps in what you have is enough. Well, you may not have money to dress up like you know who I but what you have is enough. A dollar, what you have is enough. A dollar, what you have is enough. 
What's your objection to the hand claps then? What's the because they suck. <laughs> Is it the fact they have hand claps at all, or just the style of hand claps in that song? I don't it just it's forced frivolity and forced happiness. <laughs> Yay! You know, fab, yeah. It's like having a cowbell. Nobody needs that. <laughs> so it's one Nobody, step above a cowbell. You don't need you don't need cowbell, do you? Oh. No. No, no, but I swear, I told him this is as bad as a cowbell. <laughs> okay, we end on the same four questions. Uh, so your biggest professional disappointment of the 80s? I would probably say that I say nothing was in the bigger hit and that I didn't try harder. It's really hard for me to tour. I get would get really depressed. And I, I should have just sucked it up and just done the work for a year or two <clears throat> and let the songs get their due and then you know but those, well, those are two i've got two <laughs> reading up on you it seems like you had issues with the record company i feel like the record company must have failed the band in some way because this this album has three at least three songs that should have been massive top 10 hits you know i don't want to do that dance you know what i mean it's like they did their best i i could be and am a little resentful about the b-sides but you know whatever it's it's done there's nothing i can do about it and people love the record and they are looking back now and appreciating it so i'm not going to beat that dead horse it life's too short it's you know everybody did the best they could including me i could have done you know worked a bit harder and had my shit together more so it, it no i've got nothing no complaints but I mean, I, I walk the earth. It's such a smash yeah. hit, and didn't yeah. even get top forty. It just seems like somebody somewhere, yep, either with airplay yep. or with, I don't know. I mean, look at the band: two sisters in the front, Martin, handsome bass player, Mike, killer guitars, Woody from Madness. What did what were we missing? What what did we not have that didn't you know enable us to chart like that? I I don't know the answer. So then I don't really think about it. Then I it, it's 30, 40 years ago and. It's all good. Well, that's the plus point is like 35 years later, you're releasing the yeah. position of the album. So it's, yeah. it's, it's lasted the course, yeah? Yes, that's that's a really good point. It has stood the test of time. So that yeah. is very, very satisfying. Excellent. Um, your favorite single moment of the 80s professionally? Oh, <laughs> professionally. Okay. Yeah, come on, Trace. Professionally, oh, meeting Morrissey for sure. Meeting Morrissey. That's the that's the number one. Oh yeah, and also writing a song with Andy Partridge from XTC. It's that's oh, above yes. Morrissey. That's above Morrissey. How how did that go? How how was that process? Oh my God, it was just magic. I, I, uh, I'm at a loss for words. We wrote a song together and. To sit there with Andy Partridge's voice in your ear, that that timber it has and that that depth and thickness, there's no nobody sings like him. Nobody sings like Andy Partridge. So to hear him do that way, you know, that kind of whaley thing as you're writing together, it's like it's indescribable. I, I don't know how I would explain writing with him. And I love the song that we wrote together and meeting him and having an afternoon with him was lovely. He is not only brilliant, God, I think he's an absolutely brilliant craftsman when it comes to songs. He just has a way with words and cynicism. And tw- I just, I can't say enough about him. He'd kill me. And he's also mm-hmm. 
lovely. He's absolutely lovely and a little, you know, cynical, which I totally get. He's got a bit of the dark, which which is why I think he and I hit it right off. So writing with Mark, uh, Andy Partridge, having a songwriting credit with Andy Partridge, I'll take Until it. Until you find me That's pretty, that is pretty cool. Did you have any trouble understanding him sometimes, his West Country accent? No. By that time, I had lived here two, three years, and I was around all kinds of Brits all the time. So, no, I didn't have a lot of trouble. I'm one of the only people I know in this country that can watch with Noel and I and understand every word. <laughs> I feel like a pig shut in my head. Uh, that, that's bragging rights right there, isn't it? Yeah. The Eternal Jukebox. Um, I have a thing called the Eternal Jukebox, where all all your music is wiped for eternity, but you get to keep three songs. So if you were to keep three songs from this album, which three would you choose? Oh, from this album? Yes. I was going to say Waterloo Sunset. No. Um, (laughs) I would say I Say Nothing, Just a City, and Beat of Love. Okay, cool choices. And if you had to bin one track, which track would you get rid of? Uh, Probably Trust Me or Barbarian. Okay. And three words to describe what Let It Be means to you. Oh, oh, God. Well, I used about a couple thousand words in the lyrics of the songs. Do you still need three more? <laughs> I mean, if you distill it all to three, three words. Distill I would yes. say, oh, naive, wise, and bittersweet. That's brilliant. Naive, wise, and bittersweet. Excellent. Anything else you have to declare about the album? Uh no, I think it speaks for itself, and that's really, really good feeling as a songwriter. Excellent. Um, so there's the three albums. I know you, you reformed a few years ago for, co- for concerts. It seems you're an incredibly talented person. Thank you. Have you ever thought of writing more songs? It's funny because I write in my journal all the time. I still write thoughts. I hear songs in my head that I record on my phone. But as far as being in a band again, no, that that has passed. And I love my job so much now. And, you know, people are saying, and I hate the question. I understand why they ask, but I hate it. Are you going to tour? Are you going on the road? Are you, when are you doing live gigs? And it's, we're not, we're not. And showing my family respect, there, there are family, you know, people are getting older. There's, there are some family issues. My parents are here, at least one of them. And Melissa has a teenage daughter. I'm not leaving for a tour. And she's not leaving for a tour and her daughter won't leave high school. She's a straight A student and loves loves uh, school. So she doesn't want to leave. So I'm, I'm not leaving that to go, especially at my age, you know, and be judged with the social media. And, you know, I've gotten all it. I'm lucky because what's happening now is perfect for me. I couldn't have asked for a better way for it to go. One reason we're not touring again is the last reunion gig we did was the most magical night. And I don't use that word lightly. I know you guys use it a lot. I don't like the word Mm. magical particularly, but it was, it was magic. There was something that night. It was charmed from beginning to end, even though we made mistakes, that was a really special night. And I wanted to stay right where it is. Couldn't ask for more. 
that's it. And so are you going to come back? It's like, were you not there? Did you <laughs> not see that show? Because, yeah, you know, well, I missed it. I had to work. Well, then you missed it, buddy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, see, I'm not coming from the live angle so much as more from the creative songwriting angle because you've, you've written so many great songs, but it's just those three albums. Have you ever attempted yeah. to just write a few more songs, get them recorded, and then you haven't got to do anything, I, just put them out there for people to listen to? I wouldn't mind doing that if it came along. In fact, I have some songs I've written that I like. Uh, get them recorded, release them. Go on. just the You haven't got to do anything. Is, you haven't got to like, promote them. You can just, just put them out there, yeah? But the thing is that there's life happening here in 2020. <laughs> I okay. may do it, but, I God, I barely have time to come home and eat dinner before I have to go to bed, I don't know when I would do all this, but no, I, I never say never. never you have priorities. Never. That's fair enough. You can't blame me for trying, though, okay? Maybe if, if Zed came around, although he's in no mood for that either. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate your kind words, and everybody's been so supportive, and they have no idea. I think they do, actually, what, what that means to us. It's really, we got a second little life, and it's just amazing. Beehive yeah. has the best, the best followers and the best fans. And, you know, they were bees before Beyonce's bees. So there you, go. <laughs> yeah, you were there first. And also you might want to, for your interest or for your audience is interested, we have on Facebook, we have I Love Voice of the Beehive and then Voice of the Beehive official. But the I Love Voice of the Beehive is really fun. It's it's uh, a girl in Australia and it's a bunch of the bees that if you went in the, our concert circuit, you would know. And it's just kind of fun. They post trivia and just weird stuff. And I pop in once in a while. And it's a really cool group of kids or adults with really uh, eclectic aesthetics. So you might you might find that interesting. That is the end of the interview. This is the end of the interview. Thank you very much. So thank you to Tracy for that great chat. Such a pleasure to talk to her. And it's, it's such a great record, Let It Be. And it's just great pop records. It's just aged beautifully. As you mentioned, there are only three Voice of the Beehive albums. They're all good. The first two are great Voice of the Beehive records. And the third is more 90s. But still good. They're all, they're all great songs. So please check all three of them out. Uh, and as Tracy mentioned, uh, there are a couple of Facebook groups. The official one, Voice of the Beehive, and the I Love Voice of the Beehive group. So go and have a look at them. Uh, there are some more snippets of Tracy speaking that didn't fit the format, and I didn't want to jettison them. So if you so then after the song at the end of the episode, you'll be able to hear them. I will intro them for context. And the song Tracy mentioned the Brad Knack and Robin Caston version of "I Walk the Earth." So I will leave with that and uh, let Tracy explain it herself. So how about you and Oh Beehive? Sorry, I don't know why I said that. Brad and my friend Robin did a very slow version of it. You can hear it on YouTube. I Walk the Earth with Brad Knack and Robin Caston, who has since passed, who is a very dear friend. And it's a very slow, echoey, dreamy song. And I can barely listen. To, I can barely talk about it. Uh, I can barely listen to it because Robin's not here anymore. But that is a really stunning example of how a good song, no matter how it's interpreted, can really stand up to the test of time. Grab your pack, my darling Grab your pack and walk with me 
This road is all we need I could be flat broke Or I could be a millionaire I won't be in my darling This is my Doesn't matter where I'm from I've been all over the world And I've seen everyone I walk the end, my darling This is my Stay together, but if we part, I'm sure we'll meet again. So grab your pack, my darling, and walk a road that never ends. Take my hand, take my hand, and we will walk forever. stick around this far here the extra bits first off a bit more and i say nothing and a bit on the track listing i always love to play it live and i love to hear what it means to other people because it means something totally different to other people everybody has their i say nothing story and i love that i really do it's just so joyous isn't it it is joyous that's a great word for you. you're absolutely absolutely right about that and um the fact that you got such a great pop gem kind of shoved towards the end of side two, which like in the eighties, you'd have albums front loaded. Like someone else might have compiled this album and put, I walk the earth, the first track, don't call yep. me baby. Second track. I say nothing. Third track. Right. Was that 
a deliberate thing to put just, just just to put this great pop song towards the end of the album or i would have to credit that for dave belf i i listened they made the order and i listened to it and said sounds good to me change one or two things but i i believe dave belf was responsible for that don't give it all away in the beginning you know have mm. it turn the record over and go wow this is good too and kind of space it out he was he was a genius at that i think Next up, we have some chat on the producers of the album. So some of these, these tracks are produced by Pete Collins. Yeah. And some are produced by Hugh Jones. This is a Pete Collins track. So what was the difference in, in the production styles? Well, Hugh Jones was a hero because he did the he did Manic Pop Thrill, that petrol emotion, which mm-hmm. was one of my favorite records when I first moved to England. And he did, I believe he either produced or engineered Adam and the Ants and Echo and the Bunnymen. So I knew of him. And then again, they said, would you like, Bell said, would you like Hugh Jones to produce you? I'm like, oh my God, now this. And he's very street cred indie. He's got a lot of integrity. Not that Pete didn't, but Hugh is very, it's very important for him to be uh, real and raw where Pete doesn't mind a produced pop song, and I don't either. But that was the difference in that Hugh wanted it a le- little messy and a little dirty and a little more street friendly. And Pete, I think, was coming from a place like Rush. He produced Rush. Mm. And, you know, that's crystal clear, whatever it's called. I don't like Rush, but I never told Pete that. But anyway... The production's great. I, I can't deny that I, you know, the production's good. They're very different. They couldn't be more opposite. Personality-wise, uh, work-wise, you know, P- Hugh would just, you if you're on the floor at four in the morning and you still have to do vocals, you do vocals at four in the morning. That's just the way it is. You do it until it's done. Where Pete was like, oh, we need to break for dinner at, you know, five o'clock and then we'll come back at six for another two hours and then we're done for the day. So I preferred Pete's way because Hugh was way too worked way too intensely for me. So, so was it a case that he produced the songs he wanted to produce, or was it a, a reason? Was it like there was no time? He, to... he see this is the one problem I have with with Let It Be. Well, there were only two producers on Let It Be, but our stuff in general it had too many producers. We should have had one producer to see the vision of the record, Ooh. make the record, go on with it. Maybe another producer make another vision. There were too many cooks in the soup and uh, I'm not sure what that's business. I didn't really have to do with that. I just, they said, you know, I liked you and then I liked Pete. So I didn't know the norm. You see, I came from America. I didn't never been in a band. I don't know that it's not normal to have five producers on your second record. So that was really dumb of me, but I, you know, I just was doing my best. I think it hangs together really well because I mean I think this cassette in the day and I didn't know there was more than one producer. So only looking at it now, you see, okay, so this guy produced these tracks, this guy produced these tracks, but it it really hangs together really well considering. It does. I it yeah. really does. I agree with that. I will absolutely you could not say, oh, this track is obviously produced by a different person to this track. Right. I think what happened is uh, Hugh polished it up a little, and Pete brought it a little uh, grittier. So they met halfway in the middle and that's where the beehive was waiting. Right. Yes. Beautifully put. Okay. Now some chat on the father, Bruce, who was in the four preps and her influences growing up. Uh, You mentioned your dad, your your dad was Bruce Belland, who was the four preps. Yeah. I didn't know anything about the four preps to be honest, but they they were huge in like the fifties and sixties, weren't they? 
They so. were. They were a 50s band and they had a couple, yeah, a couple big hits. 26 Miles, I remember as a kid, and A Big Man, and then Down by the Station were his hits. So I assume you got your love of music and harmony and so forth from yeah. that I did. Got I got I would say I got half of it from him and the other half from Brad. He would always make sure that we had records that we wanted. If we showed any interest in any kind of music, he would take us to the record store. I was really getting into this proves what a nerd I was. I was really getting into Irving Berlin and Judy Garland and um Paul Porter and I really liked the lyrics of those songwriters and I loved the marriage again of Judy Garland doing a Cole Porter song and I appreciated how interesting and how effective you could be if you got matched the right singer with the right writer. And so my dad was always made sure that we had any records. Melissa, of course, was into funk and wanted all the Ohio Players records. And I wanted the Judy Garland records. So that kind of set the tone for us as sisters and our personalities. Yeah. my So my dad had a huge part and he would, you know, I would learn what a melody was and I would pay attention but it came very naturally when when I remember we were at the BBC studio doing a, a session, a radio tour. I forget what they're called, but we were doing a, a song. It was I Say Nothing and we hadn't had we hadn't made any harmonies for it. And I said, well, let me try this. And I just did a harmony that we that I still do. I did when we played last and it just came naturally. I thought this just seems like something you should do. And the engineer said, did you just do that? And I said, yeah, I just, I thought it might work. I just made it up. Do you think it works? And he said, yeah, it it really fits. It works beautifully. And I didn't even think of it, really. It just came very, very naturally. It must be something, obviously, in my blood from my dad. And my grandma was very musical and runs in the DNA. Yeah, something kind of magical about that, isn't there? I love it. And finally, dealing with criticism with some sage advice to finish off with. How how would you take criticism generally? If one person said, like, in that instance, that one song they didn't like, would that be enough for you to put you off that song? Or would it be like... No, no, because I know if it's good or not. I know Barbarian yeah. is, is, is kind of filler. You know, it's just for fun. It's not going to change anybody's life. And I don't, I don't think it's filler, but I certainly don't think it's a strong track. And if you told me I say nothing is not a good song, you're wrong. It's a really good song. That's that's reassuring to know you say you have that. To trust, you have to trust music critics to to do that. And I know I had a healthy distrust of them. That's good. It's always good to have a healthy distrust of critics. I read some reviews now from the past and I'm like, what are you on about? I have read this three times and I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, like an enemy re- live review or something. Well, yeah. the thing that the the metaphor that is pop for the it's like oh my god jesus you're just have a logger and dance <laughs> don't worry about it mate it's not that serious it's not that big a deal that's great so, advice for any situation have a lager yep. and dance i love that i'm <laughs> yeah. gonna have that put on my tombstone i think when i die okay there you go Girls lie to boys and boys lie to girls.